The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you all. Nice to practice together. I've been away for a number of weeks. I had the great good fortune to sit along retreat and I don't know, so here I am now. <laughs> I felt like, well, maybe I should say something like profound about the retreat, but uh, nothing's arising. So, But tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I played around with and kind of explored on this uh, retreat. But I'd like to start, start here with this idea that it's very common when the most retreats, like if it's a week-long retreat or something, that there's a standard formula of the instructions that are given in the morning. And one of those instructions is mindfulness of thoughts. This idea of, you know, if we just, that's part of the human experience and we can bring mindfulness to everything, so let's bring mindfulness to thoughts. And so there's a few ways that this instruction is given. First is to notice what is the experience of thinking. So our thoughts, is it something like images that you see? Or or sounds that you hear? Like is it a voice or like what is the experience? completely independent of the content. Like, what is it just like to think? And putting our awareness on that, on like the form or the experience, helps us to not get lost so much in the thoughts. And then if we recognize that the thoughts like are really persistent and just... Uh, are compelling and we're just finding ourselves completely lost in thought, to maybe have a little inquiry. Well, what is, uh, is there an emotion under here that's fueling this thought? Like what, what's, what's giving the quality of these thoughts to be so compelling that we find ourselves lost in them? And maybe we might even give the instruction, well, Notice if there's a particular theme, not some the exact content, but a theme, a lot of planning. I'll just say I had no idea what a planner I was. I never didn't consider myself a planner until I started meditation practice. Wow, we, I do a lot of planning. <laughs> it's quite something. Or maybe we do a lot of fantasizing of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if this or that, you know, like imagining something that's better or... Maybe we do a lot of reminiscing or um, ruminating about something that's happened in the past. Right? There just might be certain flavors or themes and the types of thoughts that we have. And part of the reason why we give this instruction to have mindfulness of thoughts is this recognition that whatever is happening in our experience whether it's a thought or a bodily experience, sounds, whatever it might be, there's a way if we kind of like honor 
or respect that it's here, then there's a way in that we kind of like brings us into the present moment, brings us into our experience. So kind of like recognizing, oh, it's here, it's actually happening right now. There's a way that this tuning into presence can just be a gateway to a direct experience. And direct experience is a gateway towards greater freedom. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. But maybe I'll start with, okay, with mindfulness of thoughts, but what are thoughts? Like, what are they? Have you ever thought about this? So there's a few ways we might think about thoughts. One is these are like ideas. And they have some, like an ideas that uh, have maybe like a certain like a power behind them that allows us to be creative or allows us to innovate or you know do something in the world that might not happen if we didn't have those thoughts. That's one way to think about it. Another way to consider thoughts is they're occasional nuisances. They show up when we're trying to meditate and we just feel like we can't get settled because the mind is just going incessantly with thinking and maybe the thoughts are even a little bit troubling. Or maybe they're nuisances because we're trying to sleep and can't sleep because there's all these thoughts going. Or maybe another way to think about thoughts is this uh, capacity that humans have like this self-reflection, and it's part of what distinguishes us from plants or some of the animals. And not only that, this self-reflection allows us to plan and to communicate with others what our plans are, and even to like maybe organize groups of people together to you know, do these plans. Or maybe we can take like a scientific uh, approach and say, well, thoughts are just these neurochemical processes that involve a lot of neurons in some organized fashion or something like this. There's a number of different ways we might think about thoughts, but I think for like our purposes, for this idea of this wanting to have this movement towards greater freedom greater ease, greater peace in our lives. One way we can think about thoughts is if you can write it down, it's a thought. Just this, right? If there's a sentence that you can make out of it, it's a thought. And there's something about that that kind of like simplifies it. For me, I've kind of like find this uh, happy, or, or I'm sorry, like it, there's a way that kind of like takes the power out of them or the mystery out of them in some kind of way. Oh yeah, I can write this down. It's a thought. And over New Year's, I did a thinking, a thinking <laughs> about, uh, okay, so is there, you know, like some reflection I want to do to start the new year? That's kind of a tradition, right, we often do. I was with uh, some other people, and uh, and my like uh, what I wanted to offer was, or what is something that I'm working with this year? This idea, 
they're just thoughts. They're just thoughts. And there's a way of kind of recognizing, you know, that thoughts come and they th- thoughts go. They are powerful, but they don't have to be. They don't have to be powerful, right? It's kind of when we believe them or give them authority or something like this. But otherwise, they can just be one mental event that happens. So one thing about thoughts, part of uh, why they can be powerful in a maybe not so helpful way, and sometimes it's a helpful, is that they're very often like discursive, right? It's not like we have just one thought. It leads to another, which leads to another, 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 and off we go. But not only that, they're very often like self-referential. Have you noticed this? Have you looked at your thoughts? It's all about me. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I should do this. I can't believe that person said this to me. I'm going to make sure that this, I don't know, I want to do this or that. It's, it's quite something. It's really quite something. On this retreat, I was looking like, okay, I'm going to see, is there any thought that isn't self-referential? Because so much of it is like, oh, there's a sound, and I don't like it. <laughs> right? There's all this kind of a self-referential stuff. So, But there's this way also, this uh, the, the self that's getting referenced, this is, I think, really important. It's distorted. Our thoughts are distorting them. It's not really how things are. And I heard this from somebody else, and I really liked this idea. That there's all these assumptions about how we are. There's all these uh, views about how we are that maybe were true at one moment, but aren't necessarily true at that particular moment. But yet we're kind of like dragging it into the present moment. And so I heard this uh, idea that it's like you um, turn on a TV program in the middle and you, there's this assumption that you already know who all the characters are and everything and that you're just going to go along with whatever's happening. But this pointing to the direct experience reminds us that, well, you know, maybe that me that's getting referenced isn't uh, quite accurate, isn't really what's happening at that moment. That's something, as I said, it's kind of getting dragged from the past. So we have these views. We have these views about what it means to be a person in general, as well as what does it mean to be this particular person, one that we take ourselves to be. And so these views are thoughts too. Of course they are, right? And often we, we could also use this word beliefs. And we might say, okay, well, a belief, a view, are these the same? For the purposes of what I'm going to talk about tonight, I'd like to say that they are the same. And so what what is a belief? What is a view? One definition could be an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. And we could see how that relates to this sense of self. We have this sense of, oh, of course, there's this me that has to be protected and bolstered and 
enhanced and you know all these types of things. But a belief is a thought and a view, but what makes it maybe different than, than what we would say just a regular thought is that it's partially hidden. It's not so obvious to us. It's something that's like operating a little bit underneath the radar. Maybe I'll distinguish like uh, beliefs and views from opinions because opinions have like a, a solution they're offering. Like, okay, here's a solution to a problem. That's an opinion. Whereas a belief or a view is more just like a statement that this is true or this exists or something like that. So I'll make that uh, distinction. And so we might also say that uh, views are this mental events that happen, cognitive activity, type of thoughts that aren't quite seen. And and when we see it in ourselves, these are, you know, based on our experience and based on facts. It's, of course we have these views. Of course we have these beliefs. When we see them in others, <laughs> let's we see them as... Uh, unproven and rigid and narrow and oh they're just conditioned by their experienced or idiosyncratic or maybe even a little bit weird or something so it's very interesting right how we hold ours as you know of course this is the way it is but when we see other people's views we tend to be discounted discount them but not our own and that's so much about what practice is about is to help see some of these views that are influencing us in so many ways and we're not even aware of it. Of course, right, that views show up in the way we behave, what we think is valuable, what isn't valuable, or what's worthwhile, what's helpful, what isn't helpful, right? All these things are based on views, beliefs, And so one thing is interesting that maybe we don't really notice is that our view about views, our beliefs about beliefs. Because I'll offer that the, I also heard this from somebody else, is that the quantity and intensity that we hold our beliefs, how many we have and how hard we're holding on, inversely proportional to the amount of freedom we have. But we might be thinking like, no, I have to hold on to these. It's, it helps make me safe and helps me orient to the world, orient to the, have this view that um, has to be quiet in order to meditate. Or even the view that I have to meditate a lot in order to have greater freedom or greater ease and Everybody else seems to get this meditation thing, but I don't know, it doesn't quite work for me. Or or the Dharma is going to answer everything for me. If only I could just, uh, I don't know, figure things out or learn Pali, read more suttas, you know, or something like this. We have these views that often are limiting what we think is possible for ourselves or even what's possible for others makes sense that we have them, of course we do. But what's being pointed to is, can we hold them lightly with open hands instead of, you know, grabbing onto them? 
maybe some other views we might have that uh, show up in some of the ways we practice. And I know I certainly had this view. This, uh, I think this used to be a commercial. I- I'm not sure, but this expression, no pain, no gain, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> the more suffering, the better, right? I don't know. The things that I put myself through, you know, thinking that I had to, with meditation practice or a long retreat practice or things that uh, just was painful, just swimming in the dukkha, just kind of like thinking that, oh, I have to figure this out and just rehashing the most painful things like during some of these meditation sessions. Some of that comes up and it's unavoidable, but there was a way that I kind of had this view of, I deserve to suffer a little bit or that I had to get to the bottom of it and the only way I could get to the bottom of it is to think about it incessantly and then recognizing that actually there is no bottom. As long as you were thinking about it, right? There is no bottom. So maybe this idea of no pain, no gain. And I do want to you know, acknowledge that there certainly is uncomfortableness in practice. Physical discomfort, learning to meditate. But there's also the discomfort of so much about practices, like we gain some greater understanding about ourselves, about the world, and it's not always what we wish, right? I wanted to, like this idea that, oh, I'm such a planner to have one. I, I was like so disappointed in myself. I felt like, oh, Diana, I thought, you know, you could be more in the moment or something like that, but I wasn't in the moment (laughs) beginning of my meditation practice. Absolutely not. And I felt embarrassed about it. I felt like it was this deep secret I didn't want to share with anybody. So what views do we have? And importantly, what is our relationship to them? Are we attached to our ideas or do we hold them lightly and often we don't know this until they get challenged until we meet somebody who has a different view or we find that um, we feel like we're some uh, resistance or reluctance to like do something like that just doesn't seem right Maybe we can't even quite put our finger on why it doesn't seem right. But some views about views we might have are having strong beliefs makes me a strong person. There might be a way in which, you know, that might be in there. This idea that, okay, I have to hold on because if I don't have strong beliefs, I will be easily fooled. People will take advantage of me. But there's also this way, right, in which we are, whatever we're like really holding on to limits us. I'm not saying throw away all our views. I'm saying hold them lightly. Yeah, this is my current understanding. This is what makes sense to me right now. This is what I'm resonating with right now. Instead of like, this is the truth. Or, yeah, this, or this is my current hypothesis. I'm trained as a scientist, right? I love that kind of thing, right? Or maybe we have this belief a person is defined by their de- beliefs, defined by their views, and I want to 
be defined this way, so I'm going to hold really tightly to these views. Or another one that where not only people are defined, but what tribe they belong to is by what their beliefs are. And so I have to hold on to these beliefs and views because I want to belong to this community. Again, there's nothing wrong with sharing beliefs with other people. It's just, can we hold them lightly? Instead of this divisiveness. Because as I said early, earlier, this, the number of beliefs and how strong we are holding, holding, holding on to them limits us. Limits our freedom. Because, again, there's so many of these unseen views that are influencing us, influencing our behavior. These unseen views are the, way, are the reason why sometimes we do self-defeating de- behaviors, things that don't serve us. It's because there's a view underneath there. There's a belief that we don't know or aren't, that we're still believing in some kind of way. So how can we see some of these beliefs or some of these views? How can we see the unseen? This is part of what practice is about. Part of it was what I talked opened with was this idea of noticing our thoughts, but you know some of our thoughts are on the surface and easy, and some of them not so easy. So one way, or maybe I should say, noticing thoughts isn't the only way to work with thoughts. It's often what we're teaching. It's often what you know. If we teach introduction to meditation or on our meditation retreat, it's what we're teaching. But there's other ways. And so, but before we like uh, examine or explore some of these other ways, part of it is that we have to notice that we have to put down some of the views we have about what does it mean to do Buddhist practice? What does it mean to meditate? Because we might have this idea that, well, the mind should be completely devoid of any thinking. That's what real meditation is. And I don't know, have you tried it? <laughs> right? I, you know, with some real uh, concentration, there, the thoughts really do get quiet. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But when we have these types of ideas that... The, thought, the mind, the thinking should only be one way, then, you know, we kind of set ourselves up for the inner critic to get really loud because that's not what our experience is or frustration or disappointment or those kinds of things. But for some of us, the idea of maybe like using the mind during meditation doesn't doesn't feel quite right. And maybe it feels like that's a little bit of a shift that we feel uncomfortable with because often the teaching is, is that we're just noticing thoughts. And this is great. This is really powerful. But maybe I'd like to offer, maybe there's something that we can do besides just noticing that can really support us with this. But before I I, uh, talk about that, I also want to notice that sometimes we might have views that, well, a good meditation 
is when we have this experience of like not knowing. Maybe where there's this hangout in this maybe vague, fluffy, cottony space that feels comforting. Maybe maybe for us that's the what we have this idea about what meditation is. And this idea that we should do anything else doesn't feel comfortable. Or maybe we have a view that we have to actually figure things out. And that's what meditation is about. You sit down and find the answers to whatever needs answers. Or maybe your views about what meditation should be aren't maybe so clearly um, articulated or aren't so obvious, but it's worthwhile considering what views you have about meditation. So how to, un- how to see the unseen views? I'd like to offer this idea is to do an inquiry practice. And again, I want to say this is not straight up mindfulness, but it can be really like augment or turbocharge or something like this, the mindfulness practice. So what is what am I talking about? This idea of dropping in a question. And this can definitely be during meditation, but it can also be in daily life. And but it's really important like how we drop this question in. It's dropped in with a like the sense of curiosity and this openness. And there's a way that can we receive an answer instead of, okay, I got to figure this out. What is this? It's very like, you know, different. Instead, this kind of like just dropping and maybe just opening to see if something arises. Something may not arise. It may, it may not, but it's the idea of opening to the answer instead of figuring it out. And so, and bringing this, maybe this uh, certain amount of curiosity to it. But not only some curiosity, like some warmth, some care, like, oh, what, what, what is this? So here are some questions that might help with this. Is there a view here that I'm not seeing? It's an obvious, straight question. Or maybe, what view am I holding on to? Or, what belief is operating in the background? Or maybe, what am I resisting? What am I avoiding? So it's just the dropping in of the question. As I said, maybe an answer arises, maybe an answer doesn't arise. But part of the reason we want to maybe like explore and play around with this is that if you feel stuck in your meditation practice, and I would say maybe even in your life, it's because there is one of these views that's underneath that somehow is maybe sabotaging, you know, unknowingly or I I guess, yeah, like 
there's yeah, a belief or something that we're holding onto that doesn't allow this movement forward. But often we just don't know what those are. So an inquiry practice is to drop in this question, is there a view here that I'm not seeing? And as I said, this can be during meditation, it can be in daily life. And in some ways this reminds me of like, you know, the Zen have this koan practice. Koan practice is you're working with something that doesn't quite make sense, but it's the same idea of like kind of like opening up to something might arise, like something different might arise. So having this inquiry, is there a view here that I'm not seeing? What, what am I holding on to? What belief am I holding on to? And there's often a reason why they're not seen. It's because they're uncomfortable or they're protecting us from something that's uncomfortable. So if you start to feel squirmy, restlessness, this is a good sign. This means that you're like in the right territory. If you start to feel like, whoa, I don't want to do this and you get up from your meditation or something. This is an indicator that you're in the area where maybe something new, which you know isn't always pleasant, is in the neighborhood, maybe about to arise. So if we're always staying in what's comfortable, you know, we'll always stay in what's comfortable. So how to see the unseen one is to do an inquiry practice. Another one is maybe to do a settling practice, what I'll call a settling practice, which is a little bit different than just mindfulness. And you may say this is more like a samadhi or, yeah, I'll just use that word samadhi for those of you who know, kind of like a gathering, collecting, settling. And maybe I'll end with this, um, with this beautiful simile about settling that the Buddha offers in the Samyukta Akama. And it goes like this. I, I, yeah, it goes like this. It is just as someone who is panning for gold, you know, panning for gold. I, I've done this. You know, go up to the foothills here and you get a little pan and water and dirt and try to find some gold, Right. It is just as someone who is panning for gold and who places a hoard of sand and earth into a trough and then rinses it with water so that the large pieces emerge and the contamination by solid stones and hard chunks flows away with the water. So he's just describing, you know, putting some mud in there is what I'm imagining the miners did here and the, the 49ers did here in California. Yet there remains sand that is interspersed among the gold. And by rinsing it again with water, the sand flows out with the water, and after this, the gold becomes visible. Yet there is fine sand interspersed with soil, and by rinsing it again with water, the fine sand and the soil flow out with the water, and after that, there is gold that is pure, clean, and without admixture. Yet there still appears fine dross in the gold. 
And I had to look this up. What is dross? And I can't imagine having to translate this word from Pali to English. So kudos to the, some of these early translators. So dross is the residue that's left on the surface of a molten metal. I didn't know this. So, so then there's, so you get the gold away from all the dirt, but still there's this dross on it. So then it goes from the person who is panning from gold to the goldsmith. And then the simile continues. After a goldsmith places the gold into the furnace, heats it up, beating it and blowing on it until it melts in order to remove the dross and the contamination. But because the gold that is visible is not light, not soft, does not send forth brilliance and would break if it were bent or straightened, the goldsmith places it again into the furnace, <laughs> heats it up, beats on it, blows it, turns it around, casts it. And then after that, the gold is light, soft and brilliant, and it will not break if bent or straightened. And then, according to one's wish, it can be made into an earring, a necklace, a hairpin, or a bracelet or whatever one wishes. I kind of like this idea of settling, right? That there's a, you know, we could think about it in one meditation session, but we can also think about it like our whole meditation practice, you know, like over the years, right? We start to see things, some of these jewels start to become present, that as we start to like, with practice, with time, with repetition, we start to see some of the finer things that we hadn't seen before. And this, there's always this value in like, getting rid of like, these really big things that are, don't help us even to see the gold, and then even to like, purify the gold. So I like to leave with this idea that thoughts, right, they're our constant companions. You can work with them by noticing them. And beliefs and views, I like to say, are a type of thoughts. And what makes them different than thoughts is that they're often unseen. And these unseen parts are often what is, uh, if we feel stuck some way, or if we feel like we're not uh, having, if we find ourselves uh, doing things that aren't helpful, there's like some view under there. And so, one way we can do them is an inquiry practice or settling. And I could say also mindfulness will as well, but you know it might uh, take a little bit longer because mindfulness is kind of like, like passively, maybe less uh, directly kind of like purifying and moving away all the obstructions. So like to offer you with that, uh, leave you with that, and now open it up to see if there's some questions or comments. Um, this is a really interesting topic, and I was kind of curious as to, um, have you heard people say um, how they view their thoughts? Because I know for me, 
it's usually like pictures of action. But I'm wondering, do I wonder if people see their thoughts differently? Yeah. I mean, like, do they see words or, like you said, sounds? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I definitely have, like, when I teach uh, Introduction to Meditation, we talk about this, and we, like, kind of, like, take a little bit of survey, okay, who who has, and definitely some people tend to have them more as, like, a voice that's speaking, and then the question could be, is it your voice? Is it like a parent voice? Is the, what's the tone? Is it warm or is it you know, you know, kind of harsh or something like that? As well as like little mini movies that can be seen. And then the question we could ask is, is it really clear and high definition, or is it kind of sepia, you know, brown and not so clear? And right. and then the question, another question we could ask is, well. Or maybe there's types of thoughts that are images and types that are sounds. Mm-hmm. So this could be a great way to kind of like shift our relationship to thoughts. Because otherwise we just tend to believe all of them and think they're authoritative and get lost in them. But to have this curiosity, this exploration helps us to maybe shift our experience or shift our relationship to thoughts, I would say. Yeah, because um, I know for myself... Do you want to use the microphone? Um, I know for myself, my thoughts are always telling me to do, 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 because that's how it's brought up, right? You just you keep going, you have goals, and you do, 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 do. But I'm wondering if people have kind of... And it's not like an unkind voice in my head, but um, I would like it to change, you know, not always having to be, like, so productive... Yeah, to be nicer, right? Yeah. Uh, war, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really appreciate this topic a lot. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Do you think that um, the insights in our Theravada tradition, they are kind of thoughts also? I would say that insights are seen through some of our beliefs. Some of our core beliefs, are they thoughts? Mm. I, I think they become thoughts, but they're they're more experiential. I see. This is, but there's more than one type of insight. Maybe I'll say that too, right? Some of the really transformative ones. Yeah. Well, they're all transformative. That's part of the definition of an insight. This is, I would say, an insight is. Um, maybe we could say it's a thought and recognition that lessens suffering. And some of the insights we have are like psychological, like, oh, now I understand that I do that because uh, this happened in my, earlier in my life, or I want to get that, or something like that. So we have those types of insights. But some of the insights, particularly into the three characteristics, impermanent, not-self, suffering, mm-hmm. those ones that are like really transformative, life-changing, I would say, um, I think those tend to be more experiential, but then they 
as we try to understand what happened, we put thoughts on top of them. Because sometimes those um, the small insight for me, it's um, it's like some simple things during the daily life. You know, I I just look things at a different angle, and uh, I thought, well, is that a thought coming through? Um, so I don't follow my habitual patterns anymore, and I see the different angle, different way to do things. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. Probably that's a clarification or instead of thought. Okay, I was just... Does it matter if it's a thought? What what would be the... uh, what impact would that have on you if it were or if it weren't? I don't think it matters a thought or not. However, um, you know, by studying this, uh, what is mindfulness of the thought, what are they? Like you said, it's a, such a big range of it. Another thing I was wondering is the intuition. You know, is um, you're talking about um, dropping to the inquiries. Well, sometimes I have the intuition. Is that part of the answer coming through the inter- inquiries? Yeah, yeah. I would say intuition often can be an answer to an inquiry. Yeah. And I would say intuition, I uh, would put it a little bit different than thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's a different type of knowing. I was saying like, thoughts are, uh, right, if you can write it down, it's a thought. But intuition, it's not something, I mean, you could say, I just have a feeling, I just have this gut feeling or something like that, but it's a little bit different. I see. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question for you, and, not, and it doesn't need to be answered if you don't want, but I was really intrigued by your notion of getting into this place of being uncomfortable. I'm curious, because I've been in some groups, and there's a phrase that I've heard so much in the last 10 or 20 years of, I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> and so do you think there's some beneficial and non-beneficial uncomfortable? Absolutely, I would say. But it's different when you're in groups or not, I would say. When, with oneself, if you start to feel a little bit uncomfortable and you want, you feel stuck and you're doing some inquiry and you start to feel uncomfortable, that's a good sign. That means that you're getting close to something that's uh, is causing the stuckness you don't want to see or don't want to know or something like this. And it's... Uh, yeah, there's resistance to knowing it or seeing it or something, and that's why there's stuckness. But I think, yeah, interpersonally, I don't know. I guess we kind of have to, depends on the relationships and stuff like that, I would say. Yeah, because I, so maybe a view that I have is that I think there's sometimes that 
if a group gets into that uncomfortable area, there may also be something to learn. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. it's kind of like a group can really avoid, you know, like, don't go there, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So that that's what's been going on for me. So that's what I resonated with. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Maybe I'll just offer this something that I learned like a long time ago. Maybe all of you guys have heard this too. But I uh, use this in groups. There's like these three uh, phases, forming, storming, norming. Maybe you've heard this, right? And so this like the storming part is like when it's uncomfortable and just recognize, oh, that's just part of what it means to be in a group. But then you get to the other side of it and there's greater intimacy and understanding and stuff. So maybe that's what you're pointing to. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Okay, so we're at the top of the hour. I want to thank you for your kind attention and for your practice. Uh, you're welcome to come up and talk to me if you'd like afterwards. But otherwise, I wish you a lovely rest of the evening. Thank you. <laughs>